When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think it comes down to intersectional identities and how complex it is. And not just all the different facets that make us up with the different cultures, but the intersections that they occur in, even just the specific Asian identities like Southeast Asian, South Asian, East Asian, and how that impacts the way they carry themselves within the queer community is an area that we definitely need a lot of work in. Even just the gay community is very white dominant due to cultural trends where we have a lot of queer liberation happening in more Western countries and our Asian countries are a little bit behind, we end up over-indexing on white perspectives and therefore also this erasure of the nuances around respect for our elders, filial piety, that we are still struggling with figuring out how do we find space for that. Hi, I'm Stephen Wakabayashi and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Stephen Wakabayashi, the host and producer of the Yellow Glitter podcast, which explores the queer Asian experience. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Penguin Random House. This seems right up your alley, Raman. What do you mean? Well, in the past few months, we've started to feature a lot more modern minority authors. Well, what's the point of producing your own podcast about work and life through the lens of race and gender if you can't use it as an excuse to talk to some of your literary heroes? It's true. And that's what I love about our sponsor today. This month and every month, Penguin Random House invites readers to uplift AAPI stories and hashtag read Asian authors. Did you just read a hashtag out loud? <laughs> I did. And that's what all the cool kids are doing, apparently. You still haven't explained TikTok to me, dude. I, I don't really get it myself. I'll get back to you. <laughs> From books like Kathy Park Hong's vital new essay collection, Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning, to Kevin Kwan's irresistible beach read, Sex and Vanity, to Ocean Vuong's lyrical letter, On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, we're celebrating the stories that make us laugh, cry, and feel seen. That's something we're known to do on this podcast. And actually, Ocean Vuong is mentioned by today's guest, Stephen Wakabayashi. And dude, before we even heard from the fine folks at Penguin Random House, you know what book I literally just bought? Let me guess. Is it a comic book? No, dude. It's <laughs> Whereabouts by the always heart-wrenching Jhumpa Lahiri, who's one of my all-time favorite authors and an Asian-American author with Penguin Random House. She is really awesome. We should get her on this show. Working on it. But we should actually get all of these amazing AAPI authors on the pod. And Sharon, I've actually got two more Penguin Random House books I know you'll love. David Chang's Eat a Peach and Ali Wong's Dear Girls. Wow. I'm super excited about those. And we want you to uplift the stories by AAPI authors that you love by sharing them on social media 
media using hashtag readasianauthors. Throughout the month of May, Penguin Random House is donating 15% of their site profits up to $30,000 to Asian Americans advancing justice. Find your next read at penguinrandomhouse.com or go to bit.ly forward slash readasianauthors. Yeah, so we hope you'll check out some of these books. But now back to our show. As mentioned, on today's show, we're talking to Stephen Wakabayashi, a thought leader and advocate for, and the host and producer of Yellow Glitter, a podcast that explores the queer Asian experience. I was really taken aback by this one, Sharon. Stephen had reached out because he'd heard our show and we traded some emails. I listened to a bunch of his episodes and it took a while to actually get the conversation going from a scheduling perspective, but man, this was an overdue one. I'm really yeah. glad we had him on the show. Yeah, me too. He really kind of has this energy about him and talked a lot about love, which I think was such a nice way to talk about his own experiences with love from different perspectives, but is also such a, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like the essence of of who he is. He's just overflowing with it. You can feel it through just his words and and just kind of, you know, I was hearing it in my headphones, like he is, he's full of, he's full of love and he's full of light. Yeah. And you know, one of the, I like to ask the dumb, obvious question. And it was the first question I asked because we all have it in our head. No, seriously. Like why is queer Asian identity different from regular queer identity or regular Asian identity? And you, you kind of know the answer as you're asking it because some of the identities that are wrapped up in the Asian community, which to be clear, Asian is not a monolith, much like queer is not a monolith, uh, Southeast Asian, Muslim, Japanese, Taiwanese, Chinese. and But there are some cultural norms between East and West. And then when you put the filter on the queer community and parental expectations and stereotypes, it's so interesting that he's exploring the space from that perspective. And he talks about how where you you know Sharon you and I create the show for people who want to hear a different perspective yeah. but he's creating a show that's for people who are in a very like narrow community he says that a lot of his audience are outside of the US because mm-hmm. in the west we can express and have these conversations and as a queer man or or a queer woman you can't have those conversations if you're in a country where that expression is is frowned upon or even yeah. kind of persecuted. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I learned a lot just from talking to him in this conversation because as an Asian woman, where culturally I think the pressures are quite different than being an Asian man, right? Like the idea of being a firstborn son or the, the only son in a family, I think carries a different weight than it does if you're an Asian female. And I think hearing his own experience of being queer and being Asian, that intersection is quite unique in that way. And you're going to learn the secrets of the straight voice, (laughs) 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 which I couldn't give him to give a great impression of, but we we, we got a little out of him. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Stephen. Stephen, welcome to the pod. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So, Stephen, you're kind of infamous. So, I guess the thing I really want to know is, and I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot of times, where are you from? 
<laughs> so I am from Los Angeles, born and raised. I went to school in San Diego, and I have since then traveled around the world and ended up in New York City. I used to live here for a couple of years. I hated the winters, and I actually left for a little bit, went to do some work in the tech industry, and I don't know, just... I think being away from the city and just being away from the diversity and all the stuff that was happening in New York City just made me reminisce a little bit. And so after doing some traveling, soul searching, I ended up back here in New York City. I got to ask the obnoxious question you've yeah, what's up? in your life. <laughs> Where are you really from? Oh, <laughs> oh! I am from so. <laughs> and then the correct answer is I'm from LA. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Where, what am I ancestry? Yeah. yeah. So my father is from Japan, from Tokyo, and my mother is from Taiwan, the southern point of Taiwan. She is from a huge family, thirteen brothers and sisters family of farmers, and they immigrated when they were adults and then came to the United States and had me a couple years in. And yeah, my father, unfortunately, has since passed away since I was a kid. And my mother tirelessly raised myself and my younger sister all throughout my childhood and into adulthood. And she is my love of my life, my hero. I absolutely love her. And I do so much of my work because of her. Oh, so <laughs> sweet. So, so sweet. What did you think you would be when you grew up? So you probably get this answer a lot. And I <laughs> wanted to be a doctor. Of course. <laughs> well, no, what's funny I is, knew you were going to no, say no, that. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> That's actually our second question. What did your parents want you to be? Oh, yeah, that's did, true. Did you I guess, want yeah. to be a doctor? So my parents actually wanted me to be a pharmacist because they're like, oh, my God, that job looks so easy. You don't have to do anything except for <laughs> counting pills. But then I was like, no, I want to be a doctor. <laughs> so I, yeah, all my- You've got Asian mom inside of me, man. <laughs> Asian tiger mom, I know. And it's funny because I had done a lot of web design all throughout childhood. I was really interested in it. I had business selling websites as a kid. Really? But technology, yeah, technology was not a huge thing in my family. And so even as I was going through undergrad, I was kind of hiding the fact that I was taking design courses, computer science courses. It's funny now, right? I decided to take a leap into doing computer science, web development, and now into design as a part of my gap year before medical school. And I just haven't looked back since. What's I mean, there's so many questions I want to ask. What's a story from your youth that that sticks with you today? What's something before the career journey began? Mm, something from my youth that sticks with me. I, I think there's so many stories, but I think there is one particular story that a particular story that comes to mind as my youth is just especially myself being gay and Asian. It's been a very, very difficult journey, finding compassion, finding love for one another in a very conservative Asian household. And a story that I go back to is just this huge blowout argument that I had with my mother about just myself being queer. And she was just so angry, so distraught. How old were you? 
I was, I don't remember, about 10, 11. I look back at that time as a point when I just felt so helpless, so alone. I felt that I was completely sinned for the rest of my life by being queer. And also at that moment, when I look back, I have so much compassion for my mother and her perspective of just trying her best with what she knew. And I think she was just really scared of everything, you know, that would come to me. And it just reminds me of, I'm like getting choked up, but it just reminds me of this divide that we see between conservative and this new generation of Asian Americans and just the reconciliation that we still have yet to do. Yeah. I want to ask about the moment though. So you told your mom when you were 10, when did you know? Yeah. It wasn't actually a tell my mom. It's like getting caught. (laughs) 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 To be clear, hang on, to be clear. I think any 10 year old Asian kid getting caught with a boy or a girl would get in trouble. Well, it's not getting caught with a boy. It was like getting caught seeing things on the internet. (laughs) I'm not going to say that I've ever been caught, but if I had been caught, I think I would have gotten in trouble as well. Not that I'm saying that ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I mean, it was very traumatic. And at that moment, it was like, no, this is just a phase, you know, I'm just trying to protect myself. And yeah. I, I go back to that, Stephen, with just so much compassion, because it's like, how are you able to navigate that kind of situation at such a young age, standing in your own skin, but also understanding how to navigate the complexities of a conservative Asian culture? Yeah, it is one of the biggest memories I have that I just keep going back to. And I think about just what kind of life do I want to leave? Yeah. And so when when did mom finally come around or maybe when did Steven come around to really standing confident enough to, to tell the rest of the world about that? Yeah. So it was a long journey for myself. I actually started coming around to it in college. So many, many years after. And I just never talked about it again with my family until a handful of years ago, surprisingly. So much later in my 20s. And I think it came out of doing a lot of self-work, self-reflection. When I first came out, actually, was when I had gotten in a relationship that I didn't tell anybody. I was in one of those instances where like, yeah, you know, love and romance, nobody has to know. And when it just imploded on me, it just crashed and burned, didn't work out. I didn't tell anyone about the relationship. And so at that moment in sheer desperation, I let some people in and it was so filling, so heartwarming to be supported. And I think for myself, when I actually had a sit down or a walking conversation. I I was taking a stroll with my mom after we had dinner one evening and I just bared it out into the open. But at that point, I was in no relationship whatsoever, but it was just about sharing a piece of myself and being honest with myself, with somebody I care so much about and seeing the bigger picture that even if you don't agree, and she still has a lot of difficulties to this day, but just seeing the bigger picture that I would much rather be in my honest, true self with you, even if you may not necessarily accept me because I love you that much. Yeah, that's really brave. 
up until that moment, though, were there moments where, and we all have to do things to fit in, to assimilate, be teenager and college years, I just wish I could wipe those away, but to sometimes be someone we're not before you were true to yourself and true to your friends and your family, what are the sort of things you did to try to fit in? Yeah, the term that comes to mind is just code switching, right? Where we change who we are, our truths, and we do it to, at first, to survive. And the memories I go back to are in grade school. And it's so funny how kids are so intuitive, so intuitive for their own good, where kids can pick up on queer identities, but they don't know what to do with it. And what they do is they just spew a lot of the intolerance that they see in media, the family around them. And I was just bullied, so picked on all the time. And I, the memory that comes to mind is just eating in the shadows of the library, like no joke, with a couple of my friends that were also picked on. And I was extremely, extremely depressed in high school. I actually tried to commit suicide once, and I'm so glad it just didn't work out. But I just go back to trying my darn hardest to code switch in high school, and the kids around me just couldn't tell. And even as I started in my work, I still you know, do consulting in the advertising space. And in the space, it's just very male-dominated, cis-straight, male-dominated. And for much of my career has been, how do I put myself in these spaces to not scare people off with who I am, try to speak straight, try to... What is speaking straight? <laughs> no, I have to know. No, seriously. What, what yeah. do you do to switch from speaking quote-unquote gay to speaking quote-unquote straight? <laughs> Good question. So I, I even went to a speech therapist, I, I kid you not, to try to fix my intonation. And the intricacies are really fascinating. One of it is just how we tail off the end of our sentences, like that, where I'm going upwards. And a lot more masculine tendencies is to go downwards at the end it's like period. And when, yeah, and it's a mixture of just cultural slash, you know, I mean, cultural with like the queer cult community slash the Asian community, but it's, it's a little bit more passive speak, but also in the way we intonate and articulate each word, how we carry over certain phrases and words and we create bridges versus more articulate. That is what we would to know as queer speak. So a lot of my <laughs> European and Indian friends do a spot on American accent. <laughs> I can do a Southern accent if they force me to. Or, you know, yeah. like my German friend, uh, when she likes to t- use her American, she's like, yeah, I'm going to the shopping mall to do the thing. Can you do a straight accent? <laughs> you know, because it sounds like you yeah. have to code switch. Yeah. In that business meeting back in the day before you were out, were you changing your voice then to fit in? It's a mixture of that. Yeah. At one point, I was like, this is how I must succeed in capitalist culture. <laughs> wow. And so I'll I was buy like, that from you, Stephen. <laughs> I don't know what you're selling. I'm buying it. So I was like, yes. It's like, yes. No. Oh my gosh. Yes. Let's, let's, blah, 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 blah. It's let's just, get that TPS report yeah, out right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just being very articulate with your words, but also being sharp and less, I call it dance like. When you are more sharp with every single thing that you're putting down, it is seen as very much more masculine. 
domineering, aggressive. And in business sense, people see that as somebody who's confident. And I definitely was using that as one of my ways of code switching for a long, long time. Yeah. And I think we're I think especially us as uh, podcasters and when we're in the space, editing audio only, not video, we become so in tuned with voice and intonation. And I think why podcasts are successful is because we are diving into the empathetic region of our voice. Yeah, there's an intimacy to it. There's an intimacy mm-hmm. to it. When you're exactly. in someone's ears while they're doing the dishes, relaxing on their commute at the gym. Scott Galloway talks about when he meets the NYU professor, he's like, when I meet people, I can tell if they listen to my podcast, if they've seen my video on YouTube, or they just read my newsletters. And the people who listen to his podcast treat him like an intimate friend Mm. because they've had this intimate relationship listening to him for hours on end. Yeah. Why why did you get into podcasting? Because you've been doing this a little longer than us, and your take is very narrow. What has it done for you? Why have you chosen uh, this medium to kind of express your voice? Yeah. So my podcast is called Yellow Glitter, and it has since evolved a few times, but it first started off as Queer Asian Perspectives Through My Voice. And since then, it's pivoted to sharing Queer Asian Perspectives and giving them a platform to speak about the amazing things that they're doing and how it relates to life, society, and mindfulness. My mission in life. And a lot of what guides the work that I do is to create the things that I wish I had. And a big part of the driver to the podcast was creating the platform, creating the stage of the things that I wish I once had, especially when I was a kid growing up, just having queer Asian perspectives. And at first, you know, I was like, no, why don't I do something that's mindfulness related or something that's a little bit more broader, have a bigger reach? But At the end of the day, I just asked myself, Stephen, what do you need more of right now? And what came to me was I I said, I just need more of perspectives like me. And at one point after I spoke a lot, I was like, you know what? I don't need to listen to myself anymore. I want more (laughs) perspectives of people like me. And so it's been an awesome, awesome journey just featuring a bunch of different voices. And I stick to the narrow audience, particularly because I want to do the homework of seeking out and finding voices like myself. And it might not be getting the next TEDx speaker, you know, and it might not be getting someone else who has an awesome podcast with thousands and thousands of followers and reviews, but it's featuring the people who might not be as big, you know, and I think there's something really special to be said in that. What are the key differences, would you say, between queer Asian perspectives versus queer general population perspectives? Yeah, great question. I think it comes down to intersectional identities and how complex it is. And not just all the different facets that make us up with the different cultures, but the intersections that they occur in. And I have this thing that I mentioned in some of the work that I do, which is the lowest common denominator theory, where we are often relegated to find community 
when we first come out with all of our intersections to what is the lowest common denominator. And unfortunately for queer Asian folks, it ends up being with the queer community because there is rampant homophobia within the Asian community. And so they end up finding solace within the queer community. And if you go much deeper in intersections like the queer, trans, Asian community, they end up finding solace with the trans community because there is, unfortunately, anti-trans narratives within the larger queer or larger gay and lesbian community as well. And so why it's important to talk about these issues and particularly the intersectionalities is to dive in deeper into how they impact one another. And what I love talking about with my guests and what is really special about their stories is how some of the intricacies with Asian culture, right? The conservative nature of it, the filial piety, respect for elders, and all the nuances with even just the specific Asian identities like Southeast Asian, South Asian, East Asian, and how that impacts the way they carry themselves within the queer community, I think is something that is really fascinating, but also an area that we definitely need a lot of work in. As we talk about even just the gay community and what happens in that space, it is very white dominated. And it's because due to cultural trends where we have a lot of queer liberation happening in more Western countries and our Asian countries are a little bit behind, we end up over-indexing on white perspectives and therefore also this erasure of the nuances around just, right, like we mentioned, respect for our elders, filial piety, that we are still struggling with figuring out how do we find space for that. It's interesting to kind of look at it through that nuance because the same way the gay, the, the queer community, I should say, is not a monolith. The Asian community is not a monolith. I would imagine, and we were talking about this before we started recording, mm-hmm. a lot of your audience is outside of the US because we have a space where we can talk about this more publicly here in the West, so to speak. To be, to be clear, we have so much progress we need to make, but versus a queer young man or woman in Malaysia or Singapore or Pakistan, right? Like where the society might be intolerant. You know, a while back I had wanted to, um, I saw John Oliver's piece about the Uyghurs and I was thinking a lot about it. And I was like, gosh, we should use this show to talk to some people from the Uyghur community. And we reached out and we got a few folks, but everyone was like, no, I can't even talk publicly because it's going to get back to me. And it's like, I'm sure you might have had those sort of instances where, yeah, you might want to talk to a young Indonesian mm-hmm. man or woman, but they can't give that space because God forbid it comes back to them in their society. And so it's almost this escapism that your show can provide to people. Yes. it's. I, I think it's just leveraging privileges when we have it. And when we do have the privilege of being in a a country that has liberation to some degree with freedom of speech or freedom of expression, I think it's up to us to be able to create the stage for liberation for the entire rest of the community and the world. And yeah, I'm very well connected with the queer Japanese community, and I go back to Japan, connect with them, and they really rely on their brothers, sisters, and siblings 
within the Western countries to put perspectives out there that help them, help convince them and the communities of what is a way that we can become more tolerant and more accepting with one another. Does your mom listen to your podcast? She doesn't. No, most of the stuff I do. Yeah, it's it's, it's okay. Uh, my mom doesn't listen to mine either. So yeah. It's fine. Our, our moms don't listen to anything we do either. Oh man, my sister does. <laughs> yeah, I have so much compassion and love for you both. Yeah, it's the big question is, <laughs> I think it's still a work in progress for our communities, and we were just having a conversation lightly about this too, of just bridging this divide with generational differences. And it's definitely a work in progress. And I just go back to my mother and she was raised in a community where she had no choice in education, no choice in the people she was around. And all she knew was to move to the United States for a brighter future for her family. And I just go back to that truth and ask myself, you know, what are ways that I can bring her along to not necessarily be in lockstep with my journey per se, but how do I help pave the path for her? And as much as I needed the space for myself to find my own liberation and my own way to get there, I think for her, I also need to figure out how do I create the space for her to find and the freedom to find that herself as well. Yeah, it's, it's like a patience because if she comes from, our parents come from a different perspective, not necessarily a different worldview, but everything that shaped the worldview was very different. I remember getting into an argument with my folks about something, well, not silly, but I think at the time starting to date non-Indian women and they were like, well, if you're going to wait till you're done with college and then meet a nice Indian girl, it's like, you brought me to this country. What did you mm. expect? <laughs> you not, never, and we're not in Atlanta or Houston. I'm in Alabama. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> There's four Indian families and we're all weird. <laughs> so like, I think it took a while for you guys know my my sister married a, a non-Indian just like I did, but she married a black guy. And that took some time. Sharon, you married a black guy and that took yeah. your parents some time some to get time. used to. But they came around and it was patience. And it sounds like you still have a good relationship with your mom, Stephen. What is the nature? Like, what can you share and what can't you share with her? What's the line, even though you're trying to move the line patiently with her? Yeah, I think what it comes down to is also leading by example. And I go back to that phrase a lot where the perspectives and the the empathy that we want out of people cannot be told. Otherwise, if everyone just read a book, all of a sudden they would be completely woke individuals. And sometimes what people just need are examples of what to do. And it shows up in the littlest, littlest ways. And with my mother, I think it is showing how can I have patience with her in light of us not agreeing on certain facts. And also what do you guys have in common? What do you guys talk about when there, it's good conversation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or what? You're gossiping about other family. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, so funny. Basically. I think, yeah, basically, <laughs> we find a love in just food, and I think that's a great, great opportunity to share with her the stuff that I'm doing. I'm starting to get into cooking some Asian dishes as well. I'm asking her for advice. Yeah, I think that's another point too: is just finding ways that we can lean into our parents a little bit more and what that might show up as. She's not really into TV or media. Fascinating. I, I like when I grew up. I did not listen to radio or TV for like a big chunk of time. And uh, <laughs> there'll be songs that come up that people in my generation are like, "Oh my god, don't you know this song?" I'm like, "No, I, I, I actually do not," which is which is crazy. But I've been leaning more into cooking.、Uh, my mom's really into gardening, and I just absolutely cannot grow a plant for the life of me. And so, I ask her for advice there. And then, where it may show up, I will bring some current events that's happening, and I will just share with her a little bit of what's in my head, and just seeing what she's comfortable with.、Hmm. And then, what so I, selectively pick the stories、yeah. and see where.、Yeah. You can draw her out. Yes, yes, because and then gradually turn up、yep. the heat. Exactly, exactly. And oh man, like, even in my family, I'm not going to lie, Sharon. I don't know about you. The amount of arguments about Modi、yeah. and Trump as well, but even with my wife's family、mm, about Xi, yeah, it's. I don't. I mean, the heat goes on all the way. Like I don't know how to. I don't know how、Royal. to throw the lines. Like I, it's. Because to me, it's like this absolutism. It's like you can't be for this guy. He did this thing. Yeah, yeah. But someone once told me it's more important to be effective than to be right. Yes, that's so great. Yeah. For mom and turning up the heat, have you brought anybody home for her to meet? I had in the beginning, but that was when we just didn't talk about it.、So、it was my friend, quote unquote.、Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. We all know. It's like, yeah, this is my really good friend. Moms、uh, know. Moms know. Hair <laughs> straight. Moms know. <laughs> yeah, they. It's. They know. They're just not saying anything. Yeah. Right. We think we're so elusive, right? <laughs> <laughs> They've been around the block. <laughs> yeah, but since then, I just I really haven't had a relationship. Take hold, and so since then I just haven't had anyone to really take back, and yeah. But since then I've introduced her to my friends, my community, and I think it's been really great for her to see the people that I'm surrounded with. Yeah, yeah, as people. Right. Yeah, exactly as people, and whenever she has any judgments or she finds herself becoming judgmental, I inquire with her. I'm like, "Well, why is that important?" Right? I I just love these people for who they are, and as we go back to leading by example, I try to show her my tolerance of people and inviting her in the space to experience that. Yeah, it's a silly question, but I have to ask: <laughs> Do you think it would be easier on mom if you brought an Asian boy home? Versus a white boy. Oh, that's oh, a good question. Sure. Oh, for sure. So hang on. So maybe that's the tactic, my <laughs> yeah. friend. Yeah. First, first bring home、guy. a non. No, no, no. First bring home a bunch of non-Asian guys, <laughs> then bring home an Asian.、Guy. Right. Ah,、uh, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <that's true. laughs> that is. Yeah. That is the way. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I always think about that too. It's like, yeah, how can I bring her along with this journey?、Right. And it's, but I'm like, mom, you don't want to see all the messages that I've exchanged with people. It's like, <laughs> they don't want all the details. They don't want. You don't want to know. <laughs> 
Yeah. I could definitely see that as a point of solace that she can strike up with people. Love is a very complex game. Well, I want to flip the question more seriously on you. Yeah. As the guy who has the podcast about the queer Asian perspective, and and maybe not seeking love and relationships to your point, it's a complex thing. It's not for everyone. Not everyone needs to be married. Not everyone needs to be in a monogamous relationship. All these things. Everyone makes their own recipe at life. But- how do you look at race from a dating perspective? I would I would ask that to a, a straight guest as well, because you're half Taiwanese, half Japanese. There aren't as many half Taiwanese, half Japanese. You're already mixed race. You, you are my children. You are Sharon's children. When I was a kid, I thought, well, maybe I should meet a nice Indian girl. Sharon wanted a Chinese doctor. How do you reconcile who you're interested in with cultural heritage and even the baggage of the Asian parents, because as the guy who runs the queer Asian podcast, how, how does it affect your own love life? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a lot of unpacking to do. And I've done a lot of inquiring in the past year. And I think when it comes to love, the first point of reconciliation for myself that I had to recognize was that it's largely influenced by media and what I surround myself with. And I was obsessed with rom-com movies, and I'm just like a sucker for all these American movies that existed because really Asian perspectives and Asian narratives and love just didn't exist. You end up leaning and indexing towards the folks who you see in the movies. And for a long time, I had this trope of, I will love whatever race I will love because that's just who I am. But what's really tricky is we are largely the culmination of everything in our environment. And when we can shift what we are exposed to, it also radically exposes our love. And when we can see love and how successful love exists in other races, other ethnicities, we also become tolerant of their love as well. And I have since then expanded my awareness, my perception of love. And also, I think, I don't know if you all, you all have read it, but it's just love Five Love Languages. It's this like infamous book about the way we share and talk about love. And that is also indexed based on the cultures that we're influenced by, right? And when we're raised in a Western lens, we inherit Western love languages. And then we go, well, you know, I'm not attracted to a lot of the love languages that may be more from my parents' generation, right? Which is very passive. Exactly. Very passive. Exactly. And I, I think we also don't index as a fact that we just haven't been exposed to those love languages too. And love languages are like physical spoken languages. When we expose ourselves, more up to different love languages, we then can understand and speak those as well. If you could tell your past self something, if you could go back to young Stephen and tell him anything, what advice would you give him? Yeah, I would say (laughs) just first start with yourself. Love yourself so much more. And there is no limitations you need to put on yourself with how much you love yourself because of what the world tells you. You know, there's not anything you have to do. There's not anything you have to achieve. There's not anything you have to love or believe that you're okay as you are and to love that. And when you can overflow yourself with love, 
then that is the love you can give on to others. Yeah, there's that's a Beatles great. lyric there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, it's, all you uh, need no, is love. Exactly, no, no, no. The better exactly. one is the love that you make is equal to the love that you take. Or mm. no, wait, mm. maybe it's the other way around. Sorry. Yeah. John. <laughs> or love that you make is the love that you give. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Stephen, I know we have, we've gone through so much and you've been super open and fully, fully vulnerable. And we really appreciate that. It feels like it's been so short, but I think we're ready for a speed round. Are you ready to go into speed round? Hit me. Let's go. (laughs) What's one thing about you that no one expects? That I... (laughs) that I just want love. I just want to be loved. I want to give love. Hang on. We expect that after the last 10 minutes. You got to give me more of love. (laughs) What's something that no one expects out of me? Even though, okay, even though I spout so much love, I think the thing that people still don't believe is just how hard I am with myself. And that is something that I'm always working on every day that I do. And I'm trying to lean in a lot more into love rather than to be shaped by just this culture of being a model minority and perfectionism around us. Yeah. Yeah. You can't cliche, but cliches exist for a reason. You can't, you can't share your love with someone else until you love yourself. You know? Exactly. Are you more of a book, a movie or a TV show? book hands down so what's a book with a character that you relate to or that has characters that you relate to Mm, so many i've been leaning into queer asian writers more recently and ocean vuong just has writing just has beautiful beautiful writing and i've just been leaning a lot into that and just I think he captures a lot of the intricacies of intersectional identities and opens up the book with a passage about how he's writing this as a letter to his mom who may not be able to read or understand it, but he's just doing it to put his truth out there. And I think that's just so beautiful. uh, What's one of his books that you would recommend or gift to a friend? Yes, I gift it all the time. On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful book autobiography. What is your favorite mom dish? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) yes. She makes the absolute best dumplings. She makes the best dumplings. And as, as a child, I just remember she would just sit up for hours at a time, making hundreds and hundreds at a time to freeze that we would then boil, fry, cook in all sorts of different ways. I just... Uh, yeah, I just go back to it all the time when I'm missing her. <laughs> What's your least favorite food? <laughs> I struggle eating vegetables. <laughs> all of them? All vegetables? <laughs> Hang on. I'm gonna, as a parent, and I'm going to channel your mom, dude. Come on. If you want to love yourself, eat vegetables. <laughs> I, I know. Just something about the... <laughs> fibrous chewing nature i'm just like oh just make it into a dumpling for me (laughs) can you can you sneak your is that how you sneak vegetables to you you would put yes exactly i i chop them up i put them in smoothies i make smoothies every morning blend like two cups of greens 
I have to sneak myself vegetables all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Just put them into some dumplings. Yes. Be fine. <laughs> I feel like a parent talking to his child right now. <laughs> I know. Every single You've got to take care of yourself, buddy. I know. I know. My mom, my mom said the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get her to listen to this episode and then she'll call you about that. Yes. <laughs> You probably have a long list of folks. Who's someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Hmm. I send out a lot of cold messages to people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's a whole list. But I mean, I'll, I'll say who I really wanted to interview, who I actually got on, surprisingly, which was Margaret Cho. And I just, I just remember as a kid that she was someone I always had seen as somebody who was a queer Asian that was there when there were no queerations in media. But somebody who I would love to interview, just other big names, you know, I I would love to interview, I mean, like, <laughs> someone like George Takei, but not just ask him the fluffy questions, but like ask him like the real deep questions, you know, talk about his childhood, talk about things he still struggles with, his perspectives on the community. Yeah. Did you read last year, he published a graphic novel about his time in an internment camp? Mm-hmm. Then they mm-hmm. came for a site. Highly recommend it. Yeah. I've read about his work in internment camps and it's heartbreaking to say the least. And I definitely think there can be bigger narratives diving in even deeper. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome individual. Last question. Yep. Steven. And this has been just such a fun conversation. But <laughs> what does being a modern minority mean for you? Yeah. I think modern minority to me means to take a look at all the different things that we are the culmination of, the intersections of identities, the intersections of privileges, but also the intersections of all the not so privileges that we have and to embrace it for what it is and to strike up conversations to talk about it and Ultimately, I think it's to find a place where we can love and cherish what that is, because how special is it that we get to experience these things that our predecessors, ancestors from generations did not have the opportunity to. And so, yeah, it's I think every day is an awesome, awesome opportunity to do so. Well, Stephen, I've really enjoyed getting to know you before listening to your podcast, but even now going deeper into your life and your experiences. So thanks for sharing with us. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Beautiful, beautiful work you do. And yeah, just so much love for you both. Thank you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing. 
but you know better, and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.